listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. When I first started this process, I was uh, I was very lucky that I had a group a group of people. I had a teaching, and I had a teacher who could turn up the heat just right. They could make this experience of spiritual seeking and so forth uh, simultaneously uh, welcoming and brutal. I had it described to me as if uh, what our job here, what our job here at Zen Center, what we're supposed to do is we allow for you, essentially a caterpillar, to build a chrysalis with the teaching and then just the right amount of teacher, teaching, and group and your own discipline turn you into kind of a soup. And you hang there. You just hang there, not knowing what the heck is going to happen. And then eventually, at some point in time, your butterfly nature shows up. And uh, everyone's got this butterfly nature. Every one of us, on some level, is uh, a caterpillar waiting in that space to just kind of burst forth. And it's not that we... Um, <laughs> It's not easy. I mean, we, we have to take this. On some level, we take it on faith. On some level, we just kind of go, well, you know, a lot of people have talked about this. There's been a lot of writing done. I've actually uh, been doing a lot of reading of it, or I've been doing some practicing. I know there's something there, but I can't quite figure it out. I'll just kind of keep going. And I spend probably too much time talking about the, the requisite drive. But you've got to kind of want this. Otherwise, it stalls. Now, every one of us becomes a butterfly at death. When we, when we die, there is and anybody who has been with somebody who has died. You recognize kind of just this opening, this release, this, this utter relaxation into total calm, total peace. We ourselves do it every single night. Every single night when we tip into dreamless sleep, personality goes away. Everything personal goes away. It's just breath and biology. That's all, that's all we are. But carrying this practice 
you know, with purpose, with intention. Looking, looking and reading, reading the maps that have been uh, kind of drawn for us and giving it some thought, giving it some practice, giving it some fire. The minute we can kind of do this is the minute, oddly enough, the path kind of self-corrects as long as we're open to what's being offered. In other words, we find ourselves going a little bit too much this way and the path kind of, you know, if we listen carefully enough, we're guided back into uh, kind of a, um, a place where the climb can become more fruitful. And so it's my wish <laughs> on this Labor Day that your labors will be rewarded in ways that you can taste. My guess is everyone in this room on some level has had a degree of doubt, a degree of crisis, a degree of anguish, a degree of stuff feeling not quite right. And this practice, while it in no way makes everything feel right, it does offer us the freedom from being attached to feeling one way or another. It offers us space. You ever had a situation where you're, you're dealing with something in your mind or, or your experience, and when you just take a step back and you give it just a little bit of space, there's, it's almost like a healing can kind of occur. That's the same thing with this work. Can we, can we offer this purposeful life that we uh, think we are leading? Can we give it a little bit of space? Because when we do, butterflies start flying. There's a freedom there. There's something quite beautiful that emerges from what uh, might have felt like a, a prison, the trap or the prison or the snare, whatever we feel like we're caught in, actually is a tremendous offering. It's a tremendous incubation. Let's fly. I remember this moment where after a Dharma talk, uh, I did my best as a, as a, in my early Zen practice, not to try to do too much with the Dharma talk that was given. I just try to just sit there in front of it and just kind of let it, let it wash over me. That was the advice I was given at least. Don't try to make anything out of this. Don't try to think about it, which is very strange. I mean, here I was right out of college and, and I had, uh, 
honed what I thought was a fairly keen brain, and I thought, yeah, you know, this, there's no way this guy's going to, he's got anything on me philosophically or intellectually. I'll, I'll certainly be, and I remember just sitting in there the first few talks going, what the, f I just, this, I am so lost. And uh, I realized I was so obsessed with the fact that I felt lost that I was losing the gift. I was so desperate not to appear stupid. I, and I'll tell you, I, I think that that's maybe one of the biggest problems we may have uh, as a Sangha is trying to support everybody showing up whenever they feel like, uh, you know, coming to hear, uh, you know, Zen boy do his puppet dance up here and then, uh, you know, at least come away with something that they can, they, they feel they can, you know, they can, pardon me, hold on to. Uh, the nature of this work is to provide you with precisely nothing to hold on to. So it's always incredibly disconcerting. And it was that way for me. And I remember after this particular talk that was just like, it, the place was packed to the gills. The Zendo had people just, just jammed in there. And this little man gave this talk that I had no idea why, but it I, I broke into tears. I just burst into tears. And I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know why. I didn't know what he was hitting, but man, he was hitting it. And, uh, you know, I did the manly thing by just sitting there and not, you know, letting anyone know that I was crying by breathing any different. I just kept the breath going the same, but I just had, like I soaked my shirt practically with tears and had snot. You know, you, d you don't want to use the handkerchief because then it looks like you're crying, I guess. So you just kind of, <laughs> just let it let it go afterwards we were meeting for uh, tea and uh, muffins out uh, out back and uh, you know it was a, this beautiful day and I remember just trying to hold it together I didn't know anybody there and I was standing kind of uh, you know enjoying my tea and my muffin on my own I felt so uncomfortable I felt so awkward it's like going to a movie by yourself for the first time that kind of experience you know I'm just sitting there and I'm listening to these people that are sitting next to me go through this amazing kind of analysis of what was said. And it was like, how the heck can they do that? How, what am I missing? What, there's nothing. I don't even know what I'm doing here. And I realized that I had an addiction and that addiction was to knowing. I had to know. I had to know. I had to be right. I had to get it. I talk about a disaster, somebody wanting to get Zen. You want suffering? Try to get Zen. <laughs> so what is addiction? And I mean, I really just kind of just started sitting there going, what, you know, I am, I'm addicted to knowing. I want to be able to do what they're doing, and I can't because I, oh, and I wanted to avoid, and this is pretty much what addiction is, I wanted to avoid my own pain. It was like the little boy in me did not want to be uncomfortable. And the minute I kind of saw that, it's the minute the addiction began to become conscious. 
And if an addiction is held in the light of consciousness, it's no longer an addiction as much as it is a choice. This is difficult work. I'm not saying addiction is easy to just kind of give up. We all, we all are addicted, if you think about it, to one thing or another. The big addiction uh, uh, is our addiction to the mind or to the ego. That's where we really cling. Anyway, the result of this was rather profound. I, I went to the q and I remember afterwards, and I'm just, again, just trying to let it do whatever it was doing. And um, it, uh, the drive home was different that day. I don't know how to explain it. It was just different. And uh, so much of this path is, is uh, potentially, at least, birthed when we realize, I don't have a freaking clue. And the frustration met with awareness then gives us our first few steps on the yellow brick road. This is where most of us show up. Most of us show up to this path without a map. And teachers tend to be either, you know, good map makers or uh, can, you know, good guides. Um, who themselves are also on this, on this path willingly. They just might be a few, few steps down the road or up the hill, whatever metaphor you want to use. But after this particular experience uh, that I had had, uh, I was introduced to the, the uh, 10 ox herding picture, pictures that I'm going to share with you tonight. And they are a map of how this process tends to unfold. And please don't feel like you have to get it. Don't feel like you have to understand anything. Just know that this is an offering as a way for us to kind of see how the path more or less unfolds. Now, the good thing about a good map is that we can get to kind of recognize a landscape or boundaries, or at least we have an idea. We have a picture that we can, hear me out here, cling to. The bad thing about maps is that we tend to cling to them, okay? And that what we'll do is we will actually look at a map and say, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. And we will, as uh, Alfred Korzybski says, we will confuse the map with the territory. And this is the big error. So I'm giving you this little uh, uh, series of drawings here and the uh, concomitant explanation only as something for you to <laughs> play with. Please don't attach, okay? But just kind of let it in, see how it, see how it goes. We start with the first picture, okay? And I'm going to ask someone if they have reading glasses, uh, or, or I'd love to have uh, different people read. So is there anyone who would be willing to read uh, the, first, the first one here? First, let's look at the picture here. Um, these were done by uh, Hortok Loon. And th there's some great traditional woodcuts of this, but this is a more contemporary version. Um, does anyone want to read, or first, does anyone want to tell me what they see here in this, uh, this graphic? 
Just what, someone's looking for something. Someone's looking for something, okay, right? <coughs> Where are they? <coughs> They're in a park, let's say, or, or outside, yeah? They're in a park, near a tree. They're looking for something, okay? Now, let's go with the reading of step one, seeking the ox. Does anybody want to take it? Barbara, please, what does it say? The herder first embarking on a spiritual journey is unaware that the true nature of the mind cannot be found by maintaining a dualistic view of the world. The result is confusion and disillusionment. Something is missing. Something's missing and we begin looking for answers. Okay? The seeker is born. All right? Um, we have recognized when we are at step one, um, when we, we begin seeking the ox, which, by the way, when we say the ox, when we refer to the ox, you, you can use one of, well, you can use a couple of different things, but the ox in this, in this situation represents the mind or ego. Okay? And that usually surprises people. The ego? Well, the ego and the mind are not really two. They're not one, but they're not two either. Okay? They're not separate. In this case, if you feel like looking, looking at the ox is the mind, go for it. Is the ego? Go for it. I'll explain, hopefully, each of these in relationship to that uh, quasi-non-distinction. Okay? What is the dualistic? Dualistic means I'm in here and you're out there. Okay? Dualistic means up, down, right, wrong, black, white. Okay? And we start recognizing that living a life of black and white, or in here versus out there, us versus who? Them? Mm -hmm. Gets us into trouble. That something, something's not right with that. That we can keep doing this, but that it just doesn't carry us very far. And that's the seeker's starting point. Yes. Yeah, because we feel that something's wrong. Ah, and so here's where we go. You're getting ahead, young man. But Dave's right. Dave's right. Thanks for the segue, Fitz. Nice work. You get to tell us what we see in the second picture. What do we see in the second picture? Well, well actually, wait a minute. Before we get to the second picture, do we recognize that step one is usually failure-driven? It's usually, what the hell's going wrong? Something's not quite right. I'm not happy, okay? And then this puts us into, this puts us into step two. So, uh, Mr. Fitzgerald, if you would then, uh, uh, what do we see in the, in the picture there? Well, he's finding something which looks like it's maybe ox droppings. Yes, it looks like, it looks like he's finding shit, yes. And in a manner of speaking, he is. Okay. More importantly, however, um, uh, this, this individual is looking and he sees on the ground that everywhere he looks are the footprints of the ox's stomp. Okay. Who can actually share with us the, uh, the reading there for um, step two? Does anyone want to? Thank you. Though the ox is not seen or found, the presence of tracks increases the herder's confidence that it exists. The tracks represent phenomenon and the erratic nature of the mind. They're everywhere. 
aren't they? They're absolutely everywhere. In other words, our mind's imprint, its interpretations, the stories that it authors and co-authors with experience are everywhere. In other words, or if we put this in terms of ego, we realize, my goodness me, there's nothing that is not ego bound in my experience. That everything is either some past experience that I have written a story about or some future experience that I'm currently writing a story about, both of which take me out of the present moment and therefore bind me to some type of illusion. Illusion. Huh. And it's at this point that we actually start hearing things like the Four Noble Truths. Life is suffering. There's a cause to suffering. There's an end to suffering. And here's how we get out of that whole mess. It starts making sense. We can actually take a book on spiritual matters and we can begin to read it and go, aha. We start to get familiar. We become uh, a more um, uh, able seeker. We become... Uh, also a finder of suffering. We begin to identify it. We begin to see it. Okay? We begin to see pain. We begin to experience it more intensely. Okay? Yet at the same time, we have a little bit of distance there. We can see, my goodness, I'm clinging to all this stuff. I'm actually, I can't turn it off. I can't turn this urge off to cling to that. I must be addicted to whatever it is. Ready to move to step three? Somebody from this side of the room, does anybody want to um, tell us what they see actually in the picture? What do we see there in the picture? The Terry, the Terry, what do you see? The rear end of the ox. You see the ox's butt, yes. We see ox butt there, okay? The least alluring part of the animal. But we do see it, don't we? Okay, so if we want to look, if we're looking at the ox's, the mind, we're starting to see kind of the ugly end of mind. If we look at it as ego, ego's not looking so, so pretty now but we can see it, okay? Let's go to uh, uh, reading then. Can anyone read, please? Lenny, please. The path to enlightenment has been glimpsed, but much practice is needed to keep it in full view. Transcendence of the subject and the object is now known by direct experience. Past thought patterns become painfully apparent. What are we seeing? We're seeing our mind. But there's this really cool things that ha thing that happens when we can see our mind. We recognize that the seer of mind is not mind. Okay, now if you remember nothing except what I just said, I'll say this again. If you remember nothing but what I just said for the next decade, you're going to be in really good shape. Okay? <laughs> we start seeing mind. But we recognize that the seer of mind is not mind. 
last week we had this really cool, uh, uh, I had this moment with this, this one practitioner. And he said, gosh, I was glad to hear you said that some things never change. And we didn't really have time to kind of plumb this, but you're right, some things never change. Actually, no, all things change, but the awareness of those things never changes. The awareness of mind is not mind. The awareness of body is not body. Suddenly, we begin to develop this sense here in step three of, oh my goodness, I'm actually having this body. Having this body is an experience. Having this mind is an experience. But the experiencer of this is not trapped or confined by body or mind. Man, everything starts to light up at this point. Because now it's not academic. We're not talking about the four noble truths. We're actually, starting to, we're actually starting to get somewhere. We're actually recognizing, goodness gracious, there is something here, okay? When they say past thought patterns become painfully apparent, is, would that be habits? Is habits the same thing as addiction? Yeah, yeah, well, habits are like addiction light. <clears throat> habits are things we can, addiction light, yeah, because we can, we can usually take a habit and w what we can do is we can, Sometimes we can use cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes we can use 12-step. Sometimes we, I mean, there are all sorts of things we can use to kind of help us morph past them, right? But what happens is at this, at this stage, when we become more and more familiar with mind or more and more familiar, familiar with ego, we start to see, oh my God, I have been doing that my whole damn life. Yeah? And so it's a really powerful moment, usually, when any of us see that we've been making uh, a particular error that we thought was helpful, but indeed was actually damaging other people as well as ourselves in the process. Does this make sense? Okay. Anyways, at that point, when we first glimpse the ox, we realize that, the, uh, that there's some type of insubstanti uh, insubstantiality. Is that a word? <laughs> I love that word, insubstantiality. We realize that there is something that something about this 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 seer of what is seen, this feeler of what is felt, this awareness of everything that you know arises in consciousness. We we begin to just kind of go, what the hell is that? Because I can't identify it. A physician could probe every orifice and not find that. I have no idea where that is, yet it's something we all share. It's always already here. Moving on to number four, catching the ox. What do we see in the picture? Anyone care to give up a, um, an interpretation? Hanging on. Yeah, hanging on. With what? Mm -hmm. They've actually roped the ox. Yes, they've caught the ox. They have actually, it's in their sights. Okay? Let's go with the reading, please, of that little paragraph. Anybody want to take that on? Sue? The herder has caught the ox, but finds it hard to tame. The mind wanders and gets uptight when the secret does not have expert control. Anybody ever felt this? 
<laughs> this is this is the most this is the most common stage of uh, uh, most most meditators and most sanghas find themselves here, uh, you know, doing their damnedest to try to get the ox to move somewhere, you know. Uh, it's not until the next step, which we'll get to in about three seconds here, but it's not till the next step that, that actually some, some progress is made, but it's like, I've got to control this thing. My God, there it is. Okay, I know this. Witness arises, or the seer arises, or whatever you want to call it, you know, and there's this stability, but at the same time, it's not always there. Okay? It's fleeting. <gasps> you know, that type of thing. And it's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating. Okay? Yet we're far enough down the path that there's no return. You can't go back. You're going to, yeah. This is like perfect Yeah, it is. At this point, we oftentimes will get attached to, um, uh, to non-attachment, too. Right? All sorts of amazing things happen at this particular little little stage here, as we try to as we try to you know catch it, we try to get it. Okay, well, that is a great example of old egoic impulses being used to take us past old egoic impulses. You have to have desire in order to see through desire, as we've talked about before. And so this is a really, this is, this is a great pivot point on the path. Let's go to the next one, please. This is taming the ox. Who can tell us what uh, they see here in the picture? Who wants to give us the, uh... yes, Jeannie. The ox seems to be healing. The ox, yeah. Heal ox. Is it, wait, is that the noise they make? I don't think they moo, do they? Yeah. Okay, forget I just did that. We'll edit that out of the tape, but... Uh, yeah, we've got uh, the ox seeming to heal, okay? Ox is going right along with. And more or less, the self or seeker in this case is leading. Let's read the paragraph, please. Anybody? Fire away. Advanced practice makes the herder more at ease with his or her true nature. The ox, though still unruly, puts up no resistance for the preserving, persevering herder. Consciousness thus goes beyond the ordinary thinking mind. Stabilization, in other words, guys, starts to happen. And it only starts to happen if we are willing to hang on to that tree and practice being a soup hanging in that chrysalis. It only works at this point if, in other words, we actually rededicate ourselves to a stillness practice. It's very, very important. And it's not about just meditating, you know, uh, meditating throughout my day type thing as much as it is we need to kind of create, uh, uh, create a practice space where we actually do it regularly and so forth. Whereas like in Catching the Ox, um, uh, we, we see that the one before, we see that it takes more than just compassion and discipline. It takes commitment. Here we take that a step further. We have to actually let that commitment begin to give birth to a mind that is tamed. A mind that does not run away with us. That the mind is a tool that we are no longer tooled by the mind. That there is no place that we can hide and that there is no place that we can cling to. 
No place to hide, no place to cling to once the ox is tame. Moving on. Riding the ox. What do we see? What do we see there? Okay, Judy, you laughed, so what do you see there? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I'm seeing here. It's like a, a proud ox. Yeah. yeah. A pompous ox. A pompous ox. And, and, and somebody thinking that they're in control. Yeah. Looks like he's about to jump off. Looks like he's about to jump off. Yeah. Does he look comfortable? I think it's open to interpretation, but let me go with, let's read the paragraph first. Jude, can you do that for us? Read the paragraph first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you some, uh, some thoughts. The struggle is over. Huh. The ox and the herder move in one direction effortlessly, but the illusion of the subject and the object still persists. Huh? Does that make sense? In other words, there's total relaxation here at this point. The search is over. It's done. It's just creative spontaneity that begins to arise as this commitment is intensified, as this, uh, you know, we have, we have really kind of pushed ourselves, all right? There is a, um, a moment, usually, where this breakthrough kind of shows up. And this breakthrough can show up in all sorts of different uh, experiences, either on your cushion or maybe not on your cushion, but it usually shows up as kind of a, oh, oh. The struggle is done, okay? At least in that moment. The struggle is done. There is no more resistance. There is no more clinging. There is no, it's just kind of open merger of, uh, of, of ego, seeker, and everything else. It's beginning to burst past those particular boundaries, okay? Um, yes, yeah seems like there's direction here, riding the ox home. Yeah, yes, there is. I think that's a great, it, it, there is directionality to it because this, uh, this awakening is taking us somewhere, okay? It is taking us somewhere. I'm gonna come back to that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It is taking us somewhere. Let's go to, um, let's go to the next one, and now it gets real trippy. We, we've kind of hit, if you will, enlightenment, okay? But we're only at step six. We have we have several more. Is that weird? We have several more several more places to go in this particular school. Okay, this particular teaching. Who would care to tell us what they see in uh, uh, step seven? Ox forgotten self alone. What do you see? What's seen here? What's what's uh, what's the uh, visual interpretation? Yeah, parasol or something, shielding him. Where's the ox? Where's the mind? It's, it's not only detachment. It's that there is no mind. Right? There's no mind. All right? There's no ego. There, so there is no more dualism. It's self alone. All is me. Let's read the paragraph here. I think you guys will find this interesting. Anyone? Anyone want to take it? We can, we can read. Thank you. The subject and the object now become one. 
duality is transcended, the practice continues. The seeker, having learned to let go of everything, no longer has worldly attachments. In other words, the clinging is gone. The addiction is gone. You can't have addiction unless you're reaching for something, right? And there's nothing to reach for because it's all one. It is all me. In fact, the word alone is quite interesting. It's the same thing as all one. All right? It's all one. Everything is an extension of this experience that we call the me or the I. All right? It's not that there isn't a mind that can be used. It's that there is no longer a mind that uses us. It's, no, it's not that there isn't a mind that can be useful. It's that we are no longer used by any aspect of those old tendencies. It has not only been seen, been caught, been tamed, been ridden, it's now been let go. Which is exactly kind of what you, it sounded like you were saying, kind of this letting go of, of, uh, of mind. Yes? This isn't the herder anymore. Yeah, is it? Is it a seeker anymore? Does that look like a seeker sitting there by, beneath that tree? So it's not the herder. You, you said the self. Yeah, I think what's happened here is something, some, there's been a transformation between six and seven that's quite mystical. And most stop there. And it's a really dangerous place. Because when we start seeing everything as an extension of me, we start seeing that there is no ox. There's a tendency to say, there is no teaching. There is no teacher. There is just me. And then we get the, if you will, the unconscious, or what we might just as easily call the evil running amok. Crazy wisdom that's gone really crazy that's become contracted because it's no longer schooled in any appropriate way. And this is why I'm such a fan in many respects of tradition. Because tradition typically can stop that stage seven pathology. Okay? They can say, uh-uh, no, no, no. You just attach to non-attachment. Oh, no, no. But the fact that you're saying that is just an extension of me. Smack. Really? Ouch. Who did that hurt? Me? Oh, I got more work to do. Yes, you do. Go sit down. So this is a, this is a really, really uh, rich, rich space for, uh, for zaniness to occur, yet it's also a very rich space for us to unlock what's always at our, uh, uh, at our core anyway. Going on to eight. Um, this is not a trick question. What do you see visually at eight? No thing. There is nothing there. Suddenly we've gone to not only seeing the ego, uh, the surrendering the ego or surrendering the mind and being all one, but now even that experiencer is no longer there. The experience and the experienced merges and falls away. There's no striving at this point, you know? There's no, there's no uh, yearning, but there's also no non-striving and no non-yearning, okay? It's, it's this amazing 
middle spaciousness that is really at the core of what it is that we talk about. We talk so much all the time about, you know, how non-attachment and, you know, how, you know, uh, as long as we're not clinging and as long as we are actually observing ourselves and we are relaxing into this I before the I, whatever cliche or whatever thing I keep repeating you want to grab onto there. Um, what does all of that take us to? Takes us to space. Even drawing something here would be too much. You hear this? Who can read read that particular uh, uh, paragraph for us? Anybody? Thanks, Mike. The illusion of reality being separate from the mind is shattered. Enlightenment as an unconditioned state of mind is experienced. The mind has escaped from the trap of opinions and Drawing a picture would be a contradiction of no thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we have gone past. Typically, the states of mind that you're in are results of something, or fancy way of saying it, are conditioned, are taught, are learned behaviors, are learned thoughts, are learned reactions, right? All that kind of falls away. We're prior to all of that. We're prior to anything that moves. And this is what never changes. Your awareness. Your awareness of a fly on your nose. That was cool. Did you guys see that? Anyway. Your awareness never moves. What arises within that awareness is always moving. Is always evolving. But those interpretations of that stuff that are right no longer sticks. Any and all hooks have lost their barbs and have straightened and have been removed of their own accord. They naturally just kind of fall away. Okay? But we don't stop there. Next, returning to the source, what do you see there? This is kind of cool. What do we see? Nature. Yeah. The landscape we started with. Minus the landscape we started with without the person. The person. There's nothing personal there. It's nature. It's what is. It's timeless. Yeah? Can anyone read, please, the paragraph there? Search for enlightenment come full circle. The world goes on regardless of what changes have occurred. It is the nature of all phenomena. Yeah. We become so insignificant at this point. Nothing personal. Nothing personal. It's just nature. All right? It's just we are part of this beautiful cosmic dance. Or what I like to refer to as the cosmic giggle. We're all there. It's with us. We are with it in ways that don't stop at the boundary of our skin or at the boundary of our interpretation any longer. We're able to kind of unplug, open up, and resonate with all that is because we are no longer addicted to seeker, 
to self, to ego, to any of these things. It's just what is. I always uh, 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 kind of cringe whenever I hear someone say that great Zen cliche, oh, well, you know, it is what it is, which is usually their way of saying, it's total bullshit, but I'm dealing. You know, that's usually what, have you ever noticed that? It is what it is. No, you're not that, sorry. No, because I can tell your meta message there is that you're hating, <laughs> you're hating something about this experience right now. Yes, sir. My wife uses returning to the source, and I've always been confused what that means. I know you just explained the nature, but is it that we're all part of the universe? We're all just yes. In, in First, Mike, please always listen to her. Yes. Okay. Um, you do, yeah. Well, you're, you're doing a pretty good job. Yeah. The, the, the point you're making, though, here is really, really good. Returning to the source is, first of all, let's recognize what the source is. It's, 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 it's the beginning of the beginning, right? The source of all of this, in other words, it's what's prior to I. It's what's prior to that. It's, it's kind of this, this, it's what's before everything else. And what, what happens is when we return to that source, that source is basically the source of this thing we call me, along with everything else. It's quiet, it's calm, there's nothing going on. And so when we literally return to the source, especially you know, through this lens, when we return to the source, what are we really doing? We're going home in the most profound way because now we've gone, we've gone from emptiness and what we might call the dharmakaya, you know, this bam, oh, there's no thing here. There's absolutely nothing here. And now we've actually brought it back into an energetically very kind of dynamic dance of protons, electrons, neutrons, and everything in between, all there. We begin to actually play in the universe but not as a self that needs to get something done or that is addicted to anything. We are just part of the cosmic dance, playing in the cosmic dance. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. All righty. So why isn't there, um, why are we not in that picture? Because we are that picture. We are the grass. We are the trees. We are, we are the stars, right? We are all one. And we are beyond all one now. We are all things. So all one and all many. But why can't we be in the picture of particles? Because you, you, you are that. You are that. Yeah. Oh, you mean like what, how come there's a little human there? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Are you clinging to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, curious. Okay. <laughs> it couldn't be a world without me. Yes, yes. I think the point here is to really call attention to that. That there's a certain urge for, uh, I'm still here. Aren't we? Not really. Yeah? It's incredibly rich. It's a very rich source of, of uh, no thingness uh, informing everythingness. And so while it's not everything is all one or an extension of me, it's the many show up in, as a beautiful extension of me as well. Okay? And then we hit the last one. What do you see? Path 
Yeah, the path continues, doesn't it? Are there more mountains? Oh, you bet. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's right. He's got, he's got, uh, it looks like uh, Hobo Kelly there walking down the, uh, yeah, it's got, he, he has provisions. Ah, and what? What's, what's hanging on the, the edge of that uh, stick? Light. Yes, light. Okay. Isn't that neat? So now what do we have? Someone who can read, please, the paragraph there. Kettle, you were popping off, so uh, you get to, uh, you get to, you don't have your glasses. Oh, lucky you, lucky you. And neither do you, Leah. Okay, well, would you two, if you're gonna talk during class, I'm gonna make you sit in back. You give you a time out, exactly. Who, all right, Dave, thanks. The enlightened being might be anybody who has renounced the world to help others toward the path. Selfless service becomes the hallmark of wisdom. Nirmanakaya. Nirmanakaya, awakened in the world, okay? In all its glory and in all its tragedy, we become someone who can take care of business, okay? We're, if you will, an integrated being. We don't stay on the mountaintop. We come back, okay? We don't stay in bliss underneath the tree. We come back. We come back. We come back. We come back. Welcome back. What does it mean, renounce the world? Uh, yeah, I don't like that. Personally, I think it tends to confuse, but renounce the world in, 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 the, in this context is to let go of it. We let go of the world. We're no, longer, we're no longer kicked by what we hear someone say that we might disagree with. We're no longer taken off, uh, uh, off our stride, so to speak, by uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, okay? Nor are we addicted nor are we addicted to non-addiction. We are literally able to kind of meet the world in, from a, a wholly embodied space. Mm -hmm.